So for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, along with our congregation, would you be so kind as to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're joining us for the first time, we do have some folks that are visiting with us today. So just to remind you that we preach and teach expositionally through God's Word. We've done that for a number of years, well over 20, 25 years now, uh, through uh, specific books of the Bible. And I have reminded you countless times that uh, this is... Um, perhaps certainly one of, it is a way to study the Bible, but it's perhaps the best way, and at least in my opinion, because it forces us to go through Scripture that we would normally avoid, and we are in one of those Scriptures. And um, we're going to move from uh, verse 19 into verse 20 and those following this morning, but I want to pick up with verse 18. And Peter writes these words. Now, if you don't have a Bible, we do have pew Bibles. And if you would, join with us on page 1016. That version is the English Standard, and I preach from the New King James. Some change, but not a lot. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers, having been made subject to him. So may God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Father, every Sunday we're blessed with great music, and this morning we praise you because indeed you will hold us fast. It's not something that we do, it's because that we are your children, and that you love us, and that you desire the best for us, and the very best for us on the Lord's day is to be in, to, in your house and to be exposed to the word. I pray that you would convict sinners, I pray that you would comfort saints, I pray that you would teach us from the word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so Brother Jeff, if you would, verse, first slide here. <clears throat> so we have been looking at uh, a longer passage that began in verse 13 of uh, chapter 3 and goes through the end of the chapter that we just read this morning, suffering for righteousness' sake, and specifically these verses, verses 18 through 22, Christ's victorious suffering. Suffering is one of the major, if not the major, theme of 1 Peter. And this passage that we just read is, uh, no doubt, is the most difficult in either 1 or 2 Peter, and is certainly one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament, if not the most difficult passage. So when we come to a passage like this, it's incumbent upon us that we read it in context, 
and that we apply it in context. In other words, we don't lift it out of the context that it is in. There's a reason for Peter writing this to the diaspora, those that were scattered abroad the Roman Empire. So when we come to a passage, our task as an expositor is clear, and that is if we cannot plumb the depths of these mysteries, and indeed this passage is, has a lot of mysteries. We tried to, to uh, solve some of them. We will continue to do that this morning. And to align them with all of Scripture, then we have two actions. We have two takeaways from this, okay? Number one, we state the primary points as clear as we can. And number two, we avoid major error without building a novel doctrine on, um, on these obscure passages. And uh, we'll see some of that again this morning. So the past couple of Sundays, we've looked at verse 19. And verse 19 is, is indeed a, a, a very difficult uh, passage. And so we've examined five views. And last Sunday, I spent time looking at uh, the fifth view, and we... Uh, determined that the fifth view was the one that wisely fitted into this particular uh, context, into the context of Scripture. Number five is that third bullet there. After Christ arose, but before he ascended to heaven, he traveled to Tartarus. Now, Tartarus is another name for the abode of the damned, but in this particular time, or in this translation, it is the abode of the imprisoned fallen angels. It is different from Hades, Gehenna, or Sheol. So it's a different place. We spent some time going through that last Sunday morning. And so he went and proclaimed triumph over fallen angels who had uh, sinned with women before the flood in Genesis chapter 6. We spent some time looking at that. And again, I remind you, go back, uh, that those messages are on um, the uh, website via sermon audio. You can find them, and you need to listen to them if you're not uh, certain what I'm speaking to, because it will help you understand this. Now, one of the reasons for the flood was what happened when these fallen angels uh, began to uh, have uh, relationships with human women, and that proceeded to bring about some great wickedness in the, um, uh, in the antediluvian world, the world before the flood. And that's what Peter is speaking about here in this passage. So if we summarize this fifth view, Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit, went to a place reserved for the devil and his angels to proclaim triumph over their rebel activity and their attempts to prohibit his, ver uh, his birth and the subsequent crucifixion for humanity's sin, the, their attempt to corrupt the incarnation. And so that's the takeaway that we have here uh, from verse 19. Now, R.C. Sproul, and I've read a number of different uh, uh, expositors on this particular passage, and Sproul was one that said, this is a text about which I am open to correction and reproof. And I will be quick to ask the apostle when I see him in glory what he meant by these very enigmatic words, these very uh, hard-to-define words. Uh, Sproul's been with the Lord for a number of years now, but a very intelligent man, and he went to great uh, lakes to define his particular position, which is not this one, by the way. Uh, 
This is one that Thomas Schreiner, the Baptist Thomas Schreiner, and others subscribe to. We're not going to spend any more time on that now, but you already have two messages online that go through these. So don't say the pastor's confusing me. You can go back and look at those, or you can listen to them. In verse 18, we've been looking at the reality of a risen Savior. This morning, verses 19 through 21, a ridiculed Noah. And then, time permitting, verse 22, the reign of the Redeemer. So, brother, if you would, move to the next slide. Let's look at verses, uh, actually read verses 20 and 21. Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a comma there, but we know what verse 22 tells us. So the primary point from this particular passage is that when we suffer, and we're not talking about physical suffering, we're not talking about uh, illness-related or sickness-related surgery-related suffering. We're talking about suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's talking about. That we will be triumphant like Christ. And when we suffer unjustly, and we all suffer unjustly for the name of Christ, that's what verse 18 says, there is a victory in suffering because Jesus suffered for us. In fact, Peter continues in chapter 4 talking about that too. Actually look, at, actually, look at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. So this is a physical, demeaning, diabolical suffering. And Peter is encouraging uh, first century Christians with what he is writing. Now... We'll summarize this passage by saying this. Many brilliant minds have struggled with this passage, and this includes these two verses that we've just read, and disagree. Now, Dr. Peter uh, C., who is a Dartmouth neuroscience, wrote these words. A person can be brilliant and utterly wrong. So just keep that in mind. When we look at Scripture, we need to dive into it, we need to keep it in context, and we need to be faithful to what history has taught us. We're not coming up with a, a new interpretation over the past 20 minutes. We go back and look and see what the Reformers, we go back and look and see what the Apostles, we go back and look and see what Moses wrote to help us understand scripture. So, in verse 20, Noah's ridicule, Noah was ridiculed because of God's divine long-suffering. Another word for that, for divine long-suffering, is patience. And Peter talks about God's patience here. He also talks about it in 2 Peter. So, there are three ways that God's patience strengthens us. Number one, Suffering assures us of Christ's greatness. 
Verse 1 of chapter 4, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. It assures us of how great Christ is. He's not bound by space or time. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He preached in, Noah, uh, in and through Noah thousands of years ago. And he is speaking today. That doesn't change. He will be with believers. He will be with you to the end of this particular age. He will be with me if you know Jesus as Savior. If you don't, he won't. And that's one of the focuses that Peter is making here when he talks about baptism. Keep that in mind. Number two, patience strengthens us because it's better to obey God, to obey Jesus Christ, and suffer than to disobey and rebel like the spirits in Tartarus. Important to remember that. Folk thought it was foolish in Noah's day to heed his preaching. He preached for 120 years, we're told, while he was building the ark. They thought it was foolish until... The rain started. People can be converted with a message that addresses suffering. Well, preacher, I don't like suffering. I don't either. No one in their right mind likes suffering. But I would remind you again, we're talking about Christian suffering. We're not talking about physical suffering necessarily or something that has to do with a malady because even unsaved people suffer that way. People can be converted with a message that addresses suffering because suffering will eventually end with eternal joy. How do we know that? Because of verse 22. Jesus has gone into heaven. And that is a great promise for those of us that know Christ as Savior. Thirdly, believers will always be, now you need to keep this in mind, for some reason, we have developed over, this, over the past 50 years the idea that everyone's going to heaven or just the, the Hitlers and the, and the Neros and so forth are going to hell. That's not what the Bible says. Believers will always be a small, rejected minority. Always. That's exactly what verse 20 says. A few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Estimated at that time, we're not sure, but if you go back and you use Thomas Malthus type of uh, uh, population multiplication, the thought is that there were probably two, maybe two to four billion people on the earth at that time. And only eight were saved. Now, faith often seems foolish, especially with the majority. But God's minority will be saved and glorified. Not only saved, not only delivered but glorified, just as Jesus delivered and 
was glorified. So remember those three things there. That once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, and 120 years of preaching only produced eight converts. Important to remember, remember that. Now, verse 21 it says, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of the good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're going to spend probably the remainder of the message looking at baptism this morning. Now, we're Baptist. There's a reason that the word Baptist is used. Who's the greatest prophet of all time except Jesus? Who's the greatest prophet? Jesus himself said it. Who? John the Baptist. Now, he wasn't the first Southern Baptist. He was smarter than that, I think, sometime, but he certainly was called by his rightful name. The first cousin, by the way, of Jesus. Noah was ridiculed because he trusted in the escape through the flood. Now, the flood, what Peter's talking about here, is a symbol of baptism. And there's a lot of symbology here. So you have to, again, be patient as we go through this passage. The flood brought judgment in Noah's day. And Peter is reminded of that judgment and the protection of the ark through the baptism of the flood. Now, verse 18 tells us, as we started down this passage, Christ died for our sins and brought us to God. In other words, Jesus saves. But whom does Christ's death actually save? In verse 21, Jesus and Peter write about a virtual, they give us a virtual definition of baptism. Baptism is an outward expression of a spiritual, inward appeal to God for cleansing. Okay? Antitype which saves us baptism, not the removal of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism by immersion was practiced in the Old Testament for hundreds of years. When Landon was a senior in uh, high school, his senior thesis was on baptism. And he presented it to in a school that, for the most part, most of the uh, folks there probably were not baptized by immersion. So that took a little bit of courage. Okay? Now, interestingly enough, we were there when he presented it, along with Lawson when she presented hers, and uh, a remarkable, uh, they congratulated him for doing a, a good job, which Baptists ought to do. We ought to research the scripture. 
It's an outward expression of a spiritual inward appeal to God for cleansing. In other words, baptism reflects obedience. Was Jesus baptized? All God's people said? All God's people said? He was baptized. Was he baptized for his sins? No. No. Why was he baptized? Baptism is an identification. Jesus identified with the message of his first cousin. Jesus was obedient to the message of his first cousin. I'll leave it right there. It reflects obedience such as, I trust you only to apply the death of Jesus to me and for my sins and to bring me through death and judgment into everlasting life through Christ's resurrection. That's what verse 22 says. Old Testament baptism symbolized cleansing the body by immersion. Hundreds of years. But that is not why Peter says that it saves. It saves because it is an expression of faith. If you're here this morning and you know the Lord is Savior and you have not been obedient to follow the Lord in baptism, you are sinning against the command of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Go forth, go ye therefore to all the world and preach the gospel teaching them to observe all manner of things that I have left to you, baptizing them, period. It is a command of our Savior, the God-man Jesus Christ. Peter would have been baptized. Turn with me back to John chapter 2, by the way. This is why we preach exposition. John chapter 3, I'm sorry. First part of John 3 is Jesus correcting, criticizing Nicodemus. And so there's a pause here, verse 22. After these things, after Jesus correcting, criticizing, no doubt convicting Nicodemus, he moves on. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. Verse 25. And there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. 
So the rite of purification was baptism by immersion, and this occurred in the Old Testament long before John the Baptist came along. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, Jesus, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing. And all are coming to him. And then John goes talking about his great testimony that he gives toward that end of the chapter. But the thing I want you to take away here is that twice we're told Jesus baptized. Twice. So if it wasn't clear that we're to be obedient from all the rest of Scripture, here we have the physical application of baptism by immersion by Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus saves because it's an expression of faith. Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Baptism is such a calling because it's by faith in the Lord. Now, we're going to explain this as we go through, so bear with me. How does this, how, go back to 1 Peter now, how does what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 3, how does this strengthen us for suffering with Christ? Why is baptism that important? So, when we come through the water of baptism, and we've had the privilege of baptizing literally scores over the years. It symbolizes passing through death and judgment. That's what the ark did. It took Noah and his family and it brought them through the death and judgment of God. Billions of people dying all around the ark. But the ark baptized Noah's family in safety. You and I have been buried with Christ, we're told, and we have been risen with him and will be glorified with him. We have passed, we're told from the scriptures, from death to life. The suffering that we now endure for Christ's name is not God's condemnation, for we have no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Christ experienced our condemnation on the cross. We're not being condemned because of our suffering. We have received through faith and we have outwardly expressed our faith in Jesus Christ by demonstrating to the world baptism. It stands as a constant reminder that the worst of suffering has been averted. We don't have to endure the condemnation of God. We do not have to endure the wrath of God. Noah and his family were protected from God's wrath. Christ took his father's wrath for us. And right now, today, there is no condemnation. We've died with Christ. We've been raised with him. Our present suffering for the name of Christ is not because of God's wrath. 
clearly understand that. But the loving discipline of our Father and our preparation for glory. Verse 22, we won't get there this morning, but one of the great things that Christ has done for us is he has gained victory over the last enemy. And we'll speak to that next Sunday morning. The last enemy. What's the last enemy? Death. How does it strengthen us? We have been buried with Christ. We've been risen with him. We have passed from death to life. Next slide. Now, the flood is still ridiculed today. Is it not? And so is baptism. Unfortunately, sometimes baptism is ridiculed by those that claim the name of Jesus Christ. Well, I don't need to do that. Well, hopefully, or we've just shown you reasons why you do. And by the way, you become born again and then you're baptized. You're not baptized because you think you were born again and then you don't follow the Lord in baptism. As soon as you come to the realization, and we've had a number of folks here over the years that have realized that when I made that profession of faith, I was not born again. But I am now, and I want to follow and be obedient to the Lord in baptism. That's the way it works. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, and the three heresies that are taken from this passage, and we've talked a couple, about a couple of them, we're going to look at the third one now, continues to teach, this is Reformation Sunday, so this is a good time to, to pick on the Roman Catholic. They continue to teach that baptism works regeneration in souls that have been baptized, or what we would refer to as baptismal regeneration. We are Baptist, primarily, but we do subscribe to historic uh, Protestantism. And for the most part, it is, we uh, have rejected the idea that baptism regenerates or saves people. There's no efficacy, there's no Spirit of grace, which we'll talk about here in just a moment, through baptism. We have argued over the years that people who are baptized may indeed not be saved. Especially paedo-baptism, that when children are, are christened or baptized. And it's a mistake to assume that baptism indicates salvation. So the Catholics look at uh, the baptism is a sacrament. And, of course, there are seven sacraments. I'm not going to get into that this morning, but let's define this. We, as Baptists, look at it as an ordinance along with the Lord's Supper. And by the way, the Bible teaches that in order to partake of the Lord's Supper, you should be born again, and you should have been obedient in following the Lord by baptism, in baptism, before taking the Lord's Supper. Vance and I have been reading a, uh, a biography of Charles Spurgeon. And this past Friday morning as we were looking at that particular, <clears throat> uh, his background, he was, he was converted when he was uh, 15 years of age. 
The biography goes into detail by saying that he was converted and he partook of his first communion after his baptism. We've lost the sanctity of the doctrine of the church today because people want to do willy-nilly whatever they choose to do. We don't follow, as, as we've been teaching on Sunday night, the Lord has prescribed how we worship him. There's a great bit of detail in the latter part of the book of Exodus. This is how I want to be worshipped. And if you don't do it this way, guess what? People die. And we see that as we get through the gospel. Jesus just reiterated what was taught by Moses. He didn't. So be, be careful here. Well, sacrament is a religious ceremony, a ritual, regarded as imparting divine grace. It's something that I do to receive divine grace. Where the scripture teaches us that grace is imparted to us. It is given to us. It wouldn't be grace if we did it. Such as baptism or the Eucharist, which is the Mass. We looked at that in detail a couple of weeks ago. And some Roman Catholics and uh, the Orthodox side of the, the Eastern religion, the Eastern Christian religions, the Orthodox side, penance and anointing of the sick. There are a couple of others. So what they're saying is that when you partake of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper and baptism, it imparts some divine grace to you, something that you do that brings about grace. But the Scripture never says that. Never says that. And that was one of the, one of the uh, bullets that Luther identified in his 95 Theses. We're compelled to the Mass. We're compelled to follow you to, to be baptized by priests. And he said, the Scripture never says that. Now, an ordinance. Let's talk about this from Protestant or from Baptist position. Sacrament is often thought as conveying God's grace. As a worshiper performs a certain religious rite, they receive divine blessing either for salvation or for sanctification. Our position is as an ordinance. An ordinance is usually not considered a conduit of grace, but simply a practice commanded to be performed by the Lord. This do in remembrance of me, the Lord's Supper. Baptize believers. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Lord. In the name of the Trinity, the triune God. Not just God, the triune God. Jesus was very clear. In other words, a sacrament involves a supernatural work of God. And the only person that does a supernatural work is not you and I by some activity. The only person is the Holy Spirit that does a supernatural work. We're not supernatural, and we cannot bring something supernatural down to us. That is the work of the Spirit of God. An ordinance is simply an act of man in obedience to God. 
Those that call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a, an obedience to the command of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, because of this, baptism is now the third heresy taught by the Roman Catholic Church that is assumed from this passage. When we started, I reminded you that sometimes what happens is that we look at this passage of Scripture or look, look at other passages of Scripture, and we, instead of doing the due diligence to do the research to find out what it, uh, what it says, we, we construct our own theology about it. That's why church history is vitally important. Vitally important. That's why all history is vitally important. We don't come up with something over the past 20 or 30 minutes and say, well, this is what this means. If it is new, it is not true. Remember that. The first one is the Mass, where, when we've taught about this, where, where this Verse 18 says, Jesus died once. We looked at some passages in Hebrews. And the Mass actually reproduces belief. They teach that it actually becomes the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, is, uh, he, sheds his, uh, he, is, he suffers again and again and again and again and again. That's not what this Bible teaches. Secondly, purgatory in verse 19. We talked about that. One of the, one of the, uh, uh, the items for interpretation of verse 19. So we rejected that, and now, verse 21, baptism, or legalism. Next slide, brother. <clears throat> now, two things that you need to, if you're listening, say amen. amen. You can all read. Two things of vital importance. The mistake Israel made... With circumcision is very similar to the mistake that people make about baptism today. They thought that because they were circumcised, which is God's promise of salvation given to Abraham, that they had salvation. No change inside. Filled with, as Jesus said, dead men's bones, yet because they were circumcised, we're God's favorite people. And the second bullet, this is the mistake that sinners make with legalism. Thinking that some partial, incomplete obedience to the law, some activity imparts salvation. But it's faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not me alone, in Christ alone. It's faith alone, in Christ alone. Scripture teaches that baptism is a sign of God's promise for all who believe. And that the promise is not realized unless we embrace Christ by faith. 
water, and that's what Peter says. What does he say? Not the removal of the filth of the flesh. It's not a cleansing from sin. It is the three symbols that we have there. Baptism symbolizes our participation in Christ's burial and resurrection, going down into the water, the burial, and coming up, his resurrection. Secondly, it symbolizes cleansing from sin and regeneration because of what Jesus did, not because of what the water did, because of what Jesus did. And thirdly, it symbolizes our sanctification, being anointed by the Holy Spirit and our adoption into the family of God, all of this by faith alone. All of it. We reject baptismal regeneration, and we being Baptist, or others too, we reject baptismal regeneration and believe that the Bible, that the Scripture teaches, uh, Scriptures teach worth of baptism is so dependent upon faith that it ought never to be administered to anyone who has not made a profession of faith. Now, baptism is a profession of faith. Remember that. But it happens after we come to faith, not before. And Peter says, if you do this, look at verse 21, you have the answer of a good conscience toward God. Without Christ's gospel, without the imputation of his righteousness to us, without the placing of our guilt on him on the cross, without those graces, Baptism would be utterly worthless. Now, I was baptized, I think, when I was nine. I don't remember all of this. I, I, I didn't know any of this when I was baptized. But I do now. And over the years, I have learned that the signification of this, the significance of this, is vital to the church. One of the reasons the church comes together to witness believers' baptism is to bear record in the fellowship of others coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it is a sin if we are not physically able to be in the Lord's house on that day, we should be present when others are baptized. And we should be present when the Lord's Supper is taken and given. Sometimes with travel and so forth and work, sometimes that you, you can't. But I, I have known people that have professed Jesus Christ. And, and, and again, it doesn't say but legalism. We come back to this again. But have never been in the Lord's house to celebrate Lord's, the, the Lord's Supper. Now, how do you do that and claim to be a child of God? This do... As the table says, in remembrance of me, where did that come from? Because Jesus said it. I didn't make this up. Your mom and dad didn't make it up. Your grandma, your grandpa, and go on ad infinitum. This do, in remembrance of me. This is what makes a church. The church preaches the gospel 
and conveys the ordinances to those that know the Lord Jesus Christ. Very simple. It preaches the gospel and it conveys the ordinances to those that know the Lord Jesus is saved. That's what Peter's teaching. He wants to remind these, some of which are perhaps because of persecution, not having the ability to attend house churches or whatever, but he's reminding them that when you do, this is what is important. This is what is to be conveyed. A good conscience toward God. Next slide. Noah and his family were saved by the floodwaters because they put their trust in the promises of God. Do you put your trust in the promises of God? All the promises of God? Those who did not, the millions upon millions who perished in the flood, that same water was the occasion of their utter destruction. Baptism means to immerse. Again, practiced in the Old Testament. Peter uses baptism to refer to a figurative immersion into Christ as the ark of safety that sails over God's judgment. You realize that? We don't look to the ark, we look to the cross. Because the cross is the instrument of death where Jesus sails over God's judgment. They were immersed in the flood. They were protected from the flood by the ark. God preserved them in the midst of the, his judgment of his judgment because that's what God does he knows how Peter says to deliver his people from tribulation and he does this for every single one of us this morning that know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and if you don't know the Lord as Savior he will do it for you today God's final judgment will bring fire and fury on the entire universe. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 3. The entire universe. The earth will be consumed and the universe. Gone. And he will make a new heaven and a new earth. But the people of God will be protected and taken into the eternal new heavens and new earth. Now, Peter says it's not the removal of the filth of the flesh, his appeal to God. He is telling <clears throat> these people that uh, you need to have a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the baptism that really saves is dry, not wet. The death and resurrection of Christ, who places you and I and the spiritual ark of his safe salvation. And anyone who desires salvation must first come to God. Not be baptized, must first come to God. 
so that they can achieve, so that they can acquire through Jesus a cleansed conscience and desire to meet the conditions of repentance with faith alone in Jesus alone. Our appeal to God is of a conscience that is free from accusation and condemnation. And that's what Jesus grants us. One more slide with this, we'll close. <clears throat> In order to be born again, you need, obviously, to realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Have a desire, have a, a craving for the spiritual cleansing through Jesus Christ's shed blood. Peter writes about this in, chapter, in verse 18 we just read. He writes about it in verses 18 19 of chapter 1 and also in verse 24, chapter 2. Peter wants these folks to know that they're born again. Not to guess, not to say maybe, to know. They repent of their sins. They plead for God's forgiveness and removal of the guilt that plagues their conscience, consciousness, their consciences rather, and this comes through trust in Christ. So the takeaway is this. Water baptism doesn't save. <clears throat> it is the Holy Spirit baptizing the sinner safely into Jesus Christ. It's our promise that as the elect of God, it's the only ark of salvation. Christ has rescued us from hell, and he will bring us to heaven through the ark of the cross. So let's not demean the importance of baptism. It does communicate the promise of God to all who believe. It's like the rainbow. The rainbow is God's promise that he will not destroy the earth with water again. Didn't say he wouldn't destroy the earth, but he didn't say he'd destroy it with water. So it communicates the promise of God to all who believe. We do not despise his word which makes his promises verbally, nor do we dis, uh, despise, disobey his command to be baptized. Because the symbol of baptism depends on the integrity of God, not on you and I. We have no integrity apart from Jesus Christ. It depends on the integrity of God doesn't depend on me, does not depend on a priest, any of those who administer baptism or the virtues of those who receive it has nothing to do with that. I'm an instrument. I'm doing what the Lord's commanded me to do, to baptize disciples. All of this leads to the reign of the Redeemer in verse 22. And we will look at that next week. A marvelous close to the third chapter. Difficult passage that it is, but still a marvelous comfort to those of us that claim Jesus Christ.
that as God cared for eight souls among the millions upon millions that drowned, he cares for you. In fact, Peter would write this in 2 Peter. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you that by the Spirit of God that we can, we can understand what you're teaching to us. And so our prayer is this morning, if there's any here that do not know you as Savior, that you would move mightily in their hearts to convict them of their sin and convince them that Jesus is indeed the Savior that is willing and able to save them. They confess their sins and receive you as Savior. For believers, I pray for those this morning, Father, that Perhaps need to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. We ask that uh, you would grant them the courage and just grant them the, the biblical obedience to obey you. And then, Father, for those of us that have had the, the opportunity to confess you as Savior and to be witnessed before uh, a group of believers that we, through the symbolism of baptism, we died with Christ, we were buried with Christ, we rose again with Christ. May we convey that to a lost and dying world. There's been a change because of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as we've learned by Scripture alone. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. So we're going to sing a a closing hymn this morning. And if the Lord has spoken to you, perhaps you're here and you do not know the Lord as your Savior, we encourage you and we implore you, as a matter of fact, that you make that right today. Today is the day of salvation. <clears throat> as we sing, if you'd make your way out of the pew, we can take you to a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can leave here this morning with that assurance. Just recognize that you're a sinner, far greater sinner than you will ever imagine. And the longer I live, the more attuned I am to the sin in my life. But Christ is a greater Savior than all of your sin. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. If you'll come, we'll share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you. Or if you want to talk with me after the worship this morning, I'd be glad to talk with you. If you're here today as a child of God, perhaps you are a believer and you need to follow the Lord and believe his baptism, then we encourage you to do that. Uh, maybe you want to unite with us by a statement of faith, a transfer of a letter. We encourage you likewise to do that as a child of God. Let's not demean baptism. That obviously doesn't say it. But it is what the Lord commands. And so to be a believer, to be a good believer, to be a Christ-like believer, we follow the command of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What number, Brother Vance? 300. 300. If the Lord's spoken, won't you come as we...